Crossings podcast community. This teaching is called A Catechism of Dirty Underwear and is the sixth teaching in our study through the book of Jeremiah. It was taught by Caleb Gilmore on October 31st, 2021. Thanks for listening. Okay, so let's talk about conspiracy theories. Um, I know that that's exactly what you expect to talk about whenever you attend some kind of church gathering. That's something that we are all comfortable talking about. There's no awkwardness whatsoever. But the question that I have very often is, what is it about some popular conspiracy theories that make people want to believe them? So it's hard to have a dialogue across the video, but if you want to pause it, if you're watching in a group, or if you just want to think about it for a second, I want you to think about what are some of the more popular conspiracy theories out there today. We came up with a list uh, as a staff of some of these conspiracy theories that a lot of people might be prone to believe in, maybe just a little bit. And we're not talking about the crazy ones, we're not talking about the ones that are more recent, but things like the moon landing. Was it all staged in an Arizona desert? the Kennedy assassination, the death of Princess Diana, was it the paparazzi or was it secretly a hit placed on her by the royal palace? Is there a flat earth? There are people in the NBA who believe this. So some of these aren't necessarily things that you would expect crazy people to believe. There's a little bit in each of us that is prone to conspiracy theories. So why do people fall for these things? What is it about a conspiracy theory that makes them so attractive? I think at some level, conspiracy theories, uh, elaborate hoaxes seem appealing because we have this desire to find some kind of order and meaning in a world that is so chaotic and very often just absurd. It, it just is easier to believe that one person or a group of people with a lot of money or a lot of power are secretly behind a curtain pulling all of these levers, making our society go off the rails, when in reality we just live in a very complex and complicated world that's beyond the ability of our imagination to really fully comprehend. It's been said in a recent article that about half of the American public actively endorses at least one conspiracy theory. My, my question is, how many of that 50% are people who claim to follow Jesus? So in the Atlantic this week, um, there was an article by a guy named Peter Werner, and the article was enti entitled, The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart. The article begins like this with a story. The election of elders of an evangelical church is usually an uncontroversial, even unifying event. But this summer, at an influential megachurch in Northern Virginia, something went badly wrong. A trio of elders didn't receive 75% of the vote, the threshold necessary to be installed. A small group of people inside and outside the church coordinated a divisive effort to use disinformation in order to persuade others to vote these men down 
as a part of a broader effort to take control of the church. Church members had been misled, having been told, among other things, that the three individuals nominated would advocate selling the church building to Muslims who would convert it into a mosque. None of this was real. But a certain group in this church didn't like things that the pastor had been saying. And so they spread this conspiracy to try to oust the pastor and any new people who would be elected into the leadership so that they could take over the church. And sadly, research is showing that Christians, particularly evangelicals, are more likely than anyone else to believe conspiracy theories. Historian Mark Knoll wrote this book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And in it, he says, white evangelicals appear as the group most easily captive to conspiratorial nonsense in greater panic about their political opponents or most aggressively and anti-intellectual. Tim Keller talks about the sort of anti-institutional nature of evangelical Christianity, especially in America. And he says that based off of this, the American church is prone to what he calls outsiderism, in which evangelicals simply refuse to let their church form them or their beliefs. And as a result, they are unrooted and therefore susceptible to political idolization, fanatical ideas, and conspiracy theories. The problem, based off of what these people are saying in this article, has to do with who or what we allow to shape our thoughts and the way we see our world. There's this Greek word called catechesis, and maybe you've heard uh, from the Catholic Church or some other religious organization the word catechism. Uh, catechism is just a collection of beliefs, a body of doctrine that people learn in order to be formed in a particular theological ideology. Catechesis, the, the idea that you would undergo this process, basically just means that you enter into a form of learning that is formative for your instruction. This kind of learning that we undergo to be shaped and formed in a certain direction. And, and while we use this as mostly a religious word, it doesn't have to be religious. We can and are catechized consciously or unconsciously. Alan Jacobs, a Baylor University professor says this, our current political culture has multiple technologies and platforms for catechizing, teaching. Television, radio, Facebook, Twitter, and podcasts are, like the, are among them. People who want to be connected to their political tribe, the people they think are like them, the people who think they're on their side, subject themselves to its catechesis all day long, every single day, hour after hour. And then he goes on to say, many churches aren't interested in catechesis at all. They focus instead on entertainment because entertainment is what keeps people in their seats and coins in the offering plate. The problem, according to many of the voices in this article, 
is that the church has ceased to intentionally catechize, to, to instruct and shape the minds of the people who make up a part of its community toward specifically the kingdom of God, this alternative reality, and has instead settled for entertainment. The American church writ large has let politicians and radio hosts and conspiracy theorists teach its people while they spend the week planning an hour-long service which either reinforces the cultural catechism or serves as a vacation from reality. So for the last six weeks, we have been studying this Hebrew prophet, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah would have a problem with the people of God doing this stuff. Jeremiah did have a problem with the people of God doing this stuff because it was happening in his own day. So far, we've seen that Jeremiah's job was to reinforce the covenant, this red line on the canvas that we've been teaching about. This idea that Israel and God had this partnership, this relationship in which they promised to work towards an alternative reality that sought to bless the world so that people lived different kinds of lives. And so in the process, Jeremiah calls out the people of Israel for not living up to that. He calls them out for their nationalistic politics, this idol that they've made, their religious unfaithfulness, their constructions that they worshiped, the way that they oppressed at-risk people in the society. And for this, God and Jeremiah weep. Jeremiah did not believe that Israel, the people of God, could just be asleep at the wheel. They needed to be catechized, formed, shaped by something different. And for Jeremiah, that book was the book of Deuteronomy. This last book of the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. The people of God, Israel, at this time, were stuck in a religious, economic, and political crisis. The kingdom of Judah, with its center in Jerusalem, was a shadow of what it had been in the time of David and Solomon. And we have a map that we're going to show because it's important to understand exactly what the realities were that were bearing down on Jerusalem and Judah at this time that Jeremiah is speaking. And even though this map is a two-dimensional map, I promise I'm not a flat earth person. But the people had to pay this massive tribute tax to the king of Babylon way up in the Mesopotamian, in the Fertile Crescent. And most people debated about the politics of the situation. There were people who thought that they should be forming an alliance with Egypt to build up the strength to oppose Babylon. And other people were thinking that they should be cozier with the Babylonians and just get used to life this way. The idea was, should we rebel? Should we accept the situation? What should we be doing? And so instead of listening to the talking heads in Jerusalem, Jeremiah suggested that the people listen to something else the word of God in the book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 11, uh, the passage where we begin today, Jeremiah and God talk about what Jeremiah should say to the people. And most of what Jeremiah ends up saying is an allusion to the book of Deuteronomy, particularly Deuteronomy 6, which is called the Shema. And we read this uh, together at the beginning of this teaching. Uh, 
at the beginning of this gathering, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Walter Brueggemann actually calls the first part of Jeremiah 11 a meditation on the Shema. So in the first eight verses of chapter 11, I want you to note how many times the word Shema, which can be translated as hear or obey or listen, occurs. We're not going to read all these eight verses together, but I want to show you just how many times this appears. Hear the words of this covenant, Shema. Cursed be anyone who does not heed, this Hebrew word Shema, the words of this covenant. Listen, Shema, to my voice and do all I command. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. Obey Shema, my voice. Five times in eight verses, this word appears. Jeremiah's prophetic mission was to catechize the people of Israel into the covenant with Yahweh, not a covenant with some political party, be it pro-Egyptian or pro-Babylonian or pro-Israel, but pro-Yahweh. And Deuteronomy, specifically with the Shema, was a way of training people to listen, to obey, to be formed or catechized by a dependence on their God above anything else. But few listened other voices were stronger. What happens next is uh, a, a description of what happened when other people chose to listen to voices other than God in Deuteronomy. Jeremiah says, And the Lord said to me, Conspiracy exists among the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The people are committed to serving other gods, to worshiping idols, to idolizing politics. And I was thinking as Mark taught last week, which if you haven't heard, you should go back and listen to the idea about idolatry, which is discussed in Jeremiah chapter 10. And as I listened to Mark talk about the concept of idolatry, substituting something uh, that doesn't have ultimate meaning for God, which does have ultimate meaning, I was thinking about the relationship between idolatry and conspiracy theories, and I think they have at least one thing in common. The people engaged in them don't think they're doing what they're doing. Idolatry is the confusion between God and a thing, but nobody would think out loud that they're actually engaged in idolatry because they think they're worshiping God. A conspiracy is the confusion between a conspiracy and a complex reality. And if you've ever tried to convince someone that they're a conspiracy theorist, I imagine that you know that that's not really going to work out very well. There are two definitions of reality that are in competition with each other. Yahweh, the God of Israel, says that because the people have accepted a conspiracy theory, they can't hear the truth anymore. And so, God says to Jeremiah, God's going to refuse to listen to them. He says, though they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. As for you, Jeremiah, don't pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf because I will not listen when they call to me in their time of trouble. But the conspiracy wasn't just against God. It was also against Jeremiah. 
apparently some people from his hometown, this village of Anatoth, had conspired to kill him. Jeremiah says later on in 11, he says, it was the Lord who made it known to me, this conspiracy to kill him. And I knew. And then you, God, showed me their evil deeds. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. And I didn't know it was against me that they devised schemes saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living so that his name will no longer be remembered. But you, O Lord of hosts who judge righteously, who try the heart and mind, let me see your retribution upon them. For to you, I have committed my cause. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the people of Anatoth, who seek your life and say, You shall not prophesy in the name of Yahweh the Lord, or you will die by our hand. I am going to punish them. The young men shall die by the sword, and their sons and daughters shall die by famine. So, I don't know about you, but when I hear this, I have a lot of ambivalent feelings about this kind of prophetic language. I mean, on the one hand, I think about the stuff that Jesus talks about, with forgiving your enemies and turning the other cheek and all of that. But on the other hand, I want justice to be executed. I want people to get what they deserve when they do bad things. And so sometimes I think that we should reframe this concept of prophetic judgment, this, this kind of uh, retribution that Jeremiah is asking for here. Because I think what Jeremiah is asking for is simply that these people who refuse to listen, who pursue conspiracies, that they experience the consequences of living according to those things. That that false reality comes down on them and that they see it for what it is. But that only happens after the destruction, after being proven wrong. I have to confess that I am extremely weary of being a Christian in America and all that that means. And I think and hope that that's okay to say out loud. I think Jeremiah was worn out by being an Israelite in his day. There are these parts of the book of Jeremiah called Jeremiah's Confessions or Jeremiah's Complaints. And really, these are raw, authentic poems that serve as prayer. Jeremiah 12 contains one of the first of those confessions. And as Jeremiah looks around at his society where people are trying to kill him for speaking the truth, people who are refusing to be formed by the Torah instructions of the covenant with God, Jeremiah has some questions for God. This is what he says in Jeremiah chapter 12. You'll be right, O Lord, when I lay charges against you. But let me put my case to you. Why does the way of the guilty prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and bring forth fruit. You are near their mouths, but far from their hearts. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test me that my heart is with you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. I don't know if you've ever prayed that way before, 
But Jeremiah goes to God with his anger and confusion and lament. And he even acknowledges that he knows he's not going to get a straight answer from God at the beginning. I know that I'm not going to win this argument. But the need to voice the displeasure and the concern and the righteous anger is still there. It's still a part of the relationship. Walter Brueggemann again says that this is not a theological matter for Jeremiah. He's not trying to solve some philosophical puzzle about injustice in the world. This, he says, is an intense and urgent issue about a real conflict over social reality. I don't think that I have read a sentence recently that so succinctly summarizes the current condition of the church today. An intense, urgent issue about a real conflict over social reality. And yet the beauty of this passage is Jeremiah's freedom to express these feelings and thoughts out loud to God. But in this case, there is a response from God going on. So, Jeremiah, says God, if you're worn out in this foot race with men, what makes you think you can race against horses? And if you can't keep your wits during these times of calm, what's going to happen when troubles break loose like the Jordan in flood? Those closest to you, your own brothers and cousins, are working against you. They're out to get you. They'll stop at nothing. Don't trust them, especially when they're smiling. So I don't know if you've ever seen the Simpsons movie, but there's this one part, this scene where Bart's complaining to his dad, Homer, saying, this is the worst day of my life. And that great theologian and parenting model, Homer Simpson, replies, the worst day of your life so far. The harsh reality for Jeremiah was that as bad as things seemed for him at the moment, the worst was yet to come. <laughs> Jeremiah would have to witness the destruction of his faith community, his neighborhood, his religious upbringing, and its symbolism. And he'd have to help his community rebuild from the ashes. And if he was tired now, he needed to prepare himself for things to get much much worse. I think sometimes we come to church expecting an uplifting message saying that it's going to be okay, but I think that that's the entertainment model. I don't think that's a model that's teaching us the reality of the world that we're currently living in. God says, I have forsaken my house, Israel, the temple. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my heart into the hands of her enemies. This isn't going to go well. And the question for Jeremiah, for us, is how do you communicate that message to your faith community that believes in conspiracy theories? How do you make the message, like this title of this Atlantic article, the evangelical church is breaking apart, visible, so that it's not just rhetoric or words? God and Jeremiah have an idea. God tells Jeremiah, Go buy yourself a linen loincloth and put it on your loins, but do not dip it in water. So I bought a loincloth according to the word of the Lord and put it on my loins. 
Excuse me. So a loincloth is essentially more than anything else just a pair of underwear. Um, they didn't have a lot of mass-produced underwear in the ancient world, but they did have loincloths and they wrapped these things around them and it was a pretty essential part of the wardrobe, I think you would imagine and agree, hopefully. Um, but Jeremiah is told by God to go and buy a loincloth, this necessary piece of wardrobe that anybody would have to have in the ancient world. So Jeremiah goes down to the store and he buys the equivalent of an ancient pair of Hanes and he puts them on. But God says, don't wash them. Highly not recommended for you if you go to the store to buy underwear but put them on. And so Jeremiah wears the loincloth going on. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, take the loincloth that you bought and are wearing and now go to the Euphrates and hide it there in the cleft of the rock. So I went and I hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. So we're not entirely sure whether or not Jeremiah traveled all the way to Babylon to go do this thing or whether or not he picked a spot close by with a similar sounding name to enact this prophecy. But Jeremiah takes this pair of underwear that he's worn, not washed, and he hides it by a river. Now, in the ancient world, especially if you ever live by a creek, you know this, that when it rains, rivers flood. And so hiding something in the cleft of a rock by a river is basically guaranteeing that it's going to get dirty. Continuing on. And then after many days, the Lord came to me and said, go now to the Euphrates and take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug and took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it. But now the loincloth was ruined. It was good for nothing. So the question that you might be asking, and rightfully so, is what in the world is going on here? What in the world is God trying to communicate to Jeremiah and to Israel about this people who are like a loincloth? Uh, we thought about enacting this in a more realistic sense, but we figured that YouTube would flag it and I might possibly be arrested for indecent exposure. So we didn't go with that, but we do want to try to figure out and visualize in some sense what God is trying to communicate to Israel in this action. Going on, God explains. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, just so I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own will, have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them. They shall be like the loincloth, which is good for nothing. For just as the loincloth clings to one's loins. So I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord. 
in order that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. But they would not listen. Shema. So, in a sense, I know that sometimes Christians have weird ways of talking about God. They have these weird metaphors for the relationship that we're supposed to have with God. And I think the underwear loincloth metaphor might be the weirdest one yet. Um, I'm not sure I know of any worship songs that describe our relationship to God as our being underwear to God's loins. But in some sense, what Jeremiah is trying to convey is that the people of Israel have covered up the covenant. They've allowed themselves to be catechized by something other than the Shema, the book of Deuteronomy. And that as essential and close to your body as a pair of underwear is supposed to be, not wearing underwear and leaving them in a muddy place like a river is really just no good. It's useless. I think Jeremiah is trying to use this worn out, dirty underwear to recatechize, reframe, and re-educate Israel. I, it should have been a really strong visceral image. The way that Israel was living, their advertisement for living with Yahweh was about as useful as soiled underwear. They had allowed the politics of the ancient world, cheap religion, selfish lifestyles to teach and catechize them over and above obeying the covenant with God. And so they covered it up. They made it dirty and useless. If there was a message to the church in America that it needed to hear, I think it's this one. When a vote to install leaders of a faith community becomes a conspiracy theory for partisan politics, we've been catechized by dirty underwear. When the life of faith is reduced to who you vote for, we've been catechized by dirty underwear. When talking about racial reconciliation or caring for people who have been systematically oppressed or loving all people, regardless of nationality or citizenship, is framed by American politics rather than the covenant, we've been catechized and educated by dirty underwear. We've become useless. And this breaking apart, the deconstruction and exile of that, the useless thing that we've allowed it to become, is absolutely unnecessary judgment for us. The question for us is, are we really willing to take a long look at the voices we allow to teach us and catechize us and form us? Who is shaping our reality and our souls and our minds? Are we willing to build to run with the horses, to imagine some new way of doing faith that comes out of the destruction of this way of doing faith that has largely been destructive for 50 years or so? Are we willing to do that? I want to close with these words from Jeremiah to Israel. Hear Shema and give ear 
Do not be haughty, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the mountains at twilight. While you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. But if you will not listen, Shema, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. You have it coming to you. I've measured it out precisely. It's because you forgot me and embraced the big lie. Woe to you, O Jerusalem. How long will it be before you are made clean? How long? How long until we accept a version of following God that's further along and not some glimpse back to the so-called glory days of the past? How long? So we come to this part of our gathering every week um, where we gather around a table and we take juice or wine, we take bread, and we pause to remember, to reflect on this life of Jesus, um, who we believe uh, exemplifies this way of not being formed or shaped or catechized by some political reality or, or some economic reality or social reality, but to truly try to live this alternative downward mobility lifestyle of sacrifice and death so that life can emerge. And in many ways, the common meal table is its own form of catechesis. It's a way of teaching us and molding us and shaping us into people who accept that death is the way forward to life, that exile is the way forward to freedom. And it's only until we embrace the lesson of this table that we can learn and understand and live the kinds of lives that Jeremiah is trying to get us to embrace. So as we gather around the table, may this meal that we share in remembrance of the Christ who emptied himself and became a servant also be formed in us. So if you want to press pause now and take the meal or take it throughout the next song, we encourage you to do that at this time.